Let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14 this morning. Mark chapter 14. While on a South Pole expedition, British explorer Sir Ernest Shankleton left a few men on Elephant Island promising that he would return. Later, when he tried to go back, huge icebergs had blocked the way. But suddenly, as if by miracle, an avenue opened up in the ice and Shackleton was able to get through. His men were there ready and waiting and they quickly scrambled aboard and uh, no sooner had the ship cleared where they had been staying that the ice crashed together behind them. As they thought about their narrow escape, um, the explorer said to his men, it was, it was a good thing that you're all packed up and ready to go. And they replied, we never gave up hope. Whenever the sea was clear of ice, we rolled up the sleeping bags and reminded each other, the boss may come today. Jesus, as he is on the Mount of Olives, is discussing with his disciples that he is going to be taken away from them, that he is going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and that it will be soon. But they should be like a doorkeeper, as we saw in chapter 13. They should be ready and prepared for their master's return. It would be a shame for the master to come and find them sleeping spiritually. In our passage today, Jesus is going to help the disciples prepare for his departure even more. He's going to to talk to them about what they need to do in preparation for his departure and then also what type of preparation they need before he comes back. So we're going to see that Christ is preparing his followers in chapter 14. We'll begin reading in verse verse 12. Excuse me. We'll read down through verse 26. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to one, to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day 
when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Here, Christ is preparing His followers for His departure and also for His coming return. Verses 12 through 21, He prepares His followers for His departure. It begins by the preparation of a room for them to eat this last supper together. The setting is found at the beginning of verse 12 on the first day of the unleavened bread when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. The uh, Passover lambs were to be sacrificed, prepared, and eaten between sundown and midnight of the day of Passover, which was on the 14th day of the first month of the year. And then at midnight, the Feast of Unleavened Bread began. And that was to symbolize what had happened back in the Exodus as we looked at last week. Both of these really are memorials to what God had done. The Passover was the time in which God had passed over the homes of those people who spread the blood on the doorpost. And the the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to commemorate the time in which the people of Israel were to take out the leaven from within their house to symbolize their removal of evil from themselves and from their homes, from their people. And so they would continually do these memorials year after year. The Passover lamb, uh, or the Passover ceremony would take place on the same day as the first day of the unleavened bread, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which would last for seven days. And so that's where we're at. We're here at the beginning of the Passover, the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and uh, we're reading the events that are taking place. So now we're really looking at Thursday night of this week leading up to the Passion, the time in which, which Jesus will be led to the cross and pinned there because of our sin. We're on Thursday night. The very next night will be the night in which He is crucified. Two disciples are sent to prepare the meal, verses 12 through 16. We see that Jesus provides the room. And the second part of verse 12 says that his, His disciples said to Him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And He sent two of His disciples... Uh, and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. So his instructions in verse 13 are to go into the city and find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now remember how difficult of a task this would have been. The crowd was pregnant with, with uh, in number. It went from 50,000 normal population at that time to probably over a million people because of the Passover. That all the Jewish males need to come from all over the country to Jerusalem to take part in this ceremony, this memorial. And so for Jesus to say to go into the city and find a man carrying a pitcher of water was a significant Instruction. And um, how, how would how could they possibly do this? Well, one way is probably uh, maybe the most obvious is that in those days women were actually the ones that would normally carry the pitchers of water, and so for a man to be doing it, they would recognize that it would be a pretty easy thing to spot. Uh, we'll talk about how Christ organized that whole thing a little bit later, 
But what he wants them to do is to go in, find this man, and this man's going to take you to a place where I have, I want you to prepare the Passover meal. There's going to be a room that's already set up and ready. All you have to do is prepare the meal. The upper room of a house was probably used for business, uh, perhaps as a kind of inn for out-of-town out of guests. As I said, the, the, the crowd grows each year at this time of the year and perhaps at other times as well. And so many of the homes would have an upper room in their house that, that they could use to run out to people who would be in the area in need of a place to stay. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is, did Jesus talk to the person who was going to allow him to use this room or did he just sovereignly orchestrate it so that it happened, there happened to be a man there that happened to have a room and who, who just happened to see these two men coming to him? The text doesn't really tell us if this was supernatural or just ordinary means to get this room. Some believe that this was actually the home of Mark's parents, the writer of this gospel, Mark because Mark gives more details than any of the other gospel writers. And so this could very well be Mark's parents who allow Jesus to use his home and Jesus set it up in advance. Or it could have been simply that Jesus supernaturally arranged for the room to be ready, that there would be uh, this specific room as Jesus had planned because after all, he is God. Either way, the fact that the pitcher of water the man carrying the pitcher of water was there at the exact time that those two men entered the city full of people says something about Jesus' sovereign control over all things, doesn't it? And so the disciples' job is not to, not to get all the tables and chairs or however they would eat at that time, but, but rather simply to prepare the meal. The room was ready. They were to prepare the meal. That's why Jesus says in verse 15, and he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. So it has everything that you need. You need to prepare the meal. And uh, so we see that, that Christ is sovereign over all things. This may not have been supernatural, but it very well was under his control. And this is similar to what we had in chapter 11. When we saw the triumphal entry, when Jesus entered the city on a donkey, remember he he had two disciples go into the city and said, you'll see uh, a colt and, and a, the kid of a coat and, uh, of a colt, and, and I want you to grab those. And if someone asks you, why are you taking them? And you tell them that the Lord has asked for them. The Lord will uh, return them when He is through. And uh, that's exactly what happens. So, so Jesus, we see His sovereign control over all things because He is God. So, verse... 16, the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. This is not a guess on the part of Jesus. It actually happened just as he said it would happen. And as a result, the end of the verse says that they prepared the Passover. Luke 22 tells us that the two disciples are Peter and John. So Peter and John are the ones who are preparing this meal and the rest of the disciples would catch up with them later. In fact, we see that in verse 17. We see the, pre the preparation for Jesus' betrayal in verses 17 through 21. Verse 17, when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Jesus predicts his own betrayal. And uh, so he now comes together. They're in the upper room. 
and they're talking among themselves, and Jesus says to them, one of you, one of you, one person here in this room will betray me. To betray is to deliver over to an enemy by treachery or by disloyalty. And this definition perfectly fits what Jesus had predicted about His own death. Turn back to chapter 9, verse 30, that Jesus would be delivered over to the enemy by treachery or disloyalty. That's what betrayal is. Chapter 9, verse 30, this is the second time that Jesus predicts His death to the disciples in private. Verse 31, excuse me, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. This is the same idea of betrayal. The Son of Man is to be betrayed or delivered into the hands of men. Look at chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 32. This is the third time that Jesus predicts His death to the disciples in private. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. This is right before the triumphal entry. And they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. And again, He took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to Him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn Him to death and will hand Him over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him spit on him and scourge him and kill him and three days later he will rise again. To betray is to deliver over to the enemy. This is exactly what would happen with one of Jesus' disciples. And we see in in our passage, chapter 14, verse 19, that the disciples really are confused. Notice verse 19, they begin to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I, Why did the disciples each think that it could have been one of them? Why did they each think it was them? Perhaps it was because they recognized their own frailties, their own weaknesses. Perhaps it was that, uh, it was probably that, and along with the fact that the Judas was so deceitful in his following of Jesus. Jesus gives some more details because they're all confused. Surely, one by one, they say to God, Surely, or to Jesus, it's not I, is it? Is it going to be me? You would expect them at this point to point the finger. Well, I could see it could be that person or that person, but not me. But instead they say, it's not, it's not me, is it Jesus? Please tell me if it is. And so Jesus gives more detail in verse 20 and 21. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Verse 21 tells us that it was predicted, that it was prophesied. That's why he says, as it is written. Even though it was prophesied in the Old Testament, the person who would betray Jesus was still held responsible. Jesus here knows exactly what is going to happen to him. He knows exactly what's going to take place over the next day. And yet he doesn't try to escape from what is going to happen. He recognizes that it's a part of the Father's plan. 
And so what we learn here in verses 20 and 21, really 21, is that God has in His sovereign control everything, even the evilest act of men. Can you think of a more despicable act than of Judas to hand over Jesus to the, to the evil authorities? And yet God has that in control because Jesus says here, look at verse 21, For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him. God has even those acts under His sovereign control. One of the commentators writes and puts it this way, Homer Kent, he writes, Our God is big enough to grant man sufficient freedom to act without coercion and to be morally responsible. And yet, God knows exactly what we will do and has incorporated it all into His plan. It is certainly complex, if not impossible, to understand the relationship between God's sovereignty that He has control even over the evilest acts of men. To, to, to try to correlate God's sovereignty and our own responsibility, that we have some sort of freedom, that we're not acting in a way in which we're coerced. We're not being forced to sin in any way. No way can we say that God forced us to sin. And I'm not claiming that that I can satisfy that, that relationship, but what we do need to recognize is that in the Scriptures, it is there. If you read in Genesis towards the end with the life of Joseph that he he talks to his brothers and he says you know what you you did this to me you were the ones who led me here you were the ones who sold me out and yet God really sent me before you he says it in the same verse I think it's in chapter 45 he says God sent me before you so that I could be in this position to help save God's people and in chapter 50, verse 20, he says, You, you meant it for evil. See, that's this part over here. We often have evil intentions, yet God uses it. That's His sovereignty. He uses it for good. And so what we see in the Scriptures is that both of these are here. That both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work. And, uh, and somehow they work together without without attributing any evil to God. Now what's happening here in um in 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 these verses here verses 17 through 21 verse 20 and 21 we need to understand is not spoken to all of the disciples. It is not spoken to all the disciples. And the reason I say that is because of John chapter 13. Turn there with me. John recounts the same story that we're reading about And yet, John records that it was this information was only given to John and Peter. It seems as if John and Peter were the only ones who knew who would dip into the same bowl as Jesus dipped. In other words, who it was who would betray him. See, here we'll talk about how this conversation goes here, but let me show you in verse 21 of chapter 13 that we're talking about the same thing. Okay, we're at the Lord's Supper in verse 21. When Jesus had said this, He became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray Me. And then notice um, verse 23. 
there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And if you know the Gospel of John, you know that's actually the way that John refers to himself. Okay, so John's leaning on Jesus. Verse 24, So Simon Peter gestured to him and, uh, and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said, What you do, do quickly. So what we have here is the same story, but but Mark is a little bit more vague in, in who Jesus is actually talking to. John makes it more clear, I think, as to what he's doing. He's saying to all of them, like this, one of you, one of the twelve people in this room will betray me. So all of them know that. But then Peter gestures to John, who's very near Jesus, and he says, ask him who he's talking about. Ask Jesus who he's talking about. And Jesus says, it's the one who's going to dip this morsel into the cup, into the bowl with me. Judas does this. They see it. And then Judas enters. And notice, the reason I think this is verse 28. Look at verse 28 with me. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. Okay, this is They hear that Jesus says to Judas, verse 27, what you do, do quickly. They all hear that. But, but they're confused. Look at verse 29. For some of the disciples were supposing because Judas has the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. So what are the disciples thinking at this time? They're thinking it's not Judas who's going to betray. They don't understand Jesus' phrase, what you do, do quickly. They think he's talking about some sort of other activity that Judas needs to do, whether it be to give some money to the poor or prepare for the feast that's coming up. Judas, you need to do this. See, they don't recognize that Judas was the one that would betray him. Now, how could how could Jesus how could someone so close to Jesus turn back to Mark 14 with me? How could someone so close to Jesus betray him? How could someone who had lived his life the last 3 years following Jesus, hearing his teaching, how could he betray Jesus? The disciples are confused as to who Jesus is talking about, but Judas knows and Jesus knows and apparently Peter and John know that it is going to be Judas. What's amazing about Judas is that like the other disciples we read in chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, that he was appointed by Christ. Christ picked him out of the crowd and said, you will be one of my followers. Judas was taught by Jesus. He was there when Jesus was teaching. He wasn't there at all the times when he taught. Remember, Jesus would often take Peter, James, and John aside. But Judas would listen to much of Jesus' teaching. Judas was there when Jesus predicted his death three times. Judas was there on the Mount of Olives when Jesus talked about his going away and his coming back. And in fact, Judas was even there among the disciples who were preaching in the name of Jesus. 
turn to chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 7, And he, Jesus, summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And Jesus gives them instructions. We won't go that far, but, but you get the idea. What, what I wanted you to focus on is that Jesus sends out the twelve in pairs to, to spread his fame and to teach people about the coming kingdom. And notice what He does at the end of verse 7. And He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Maybe we could think, well, well, Judas probably couldn't have done that. Judas couldn't have cast out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. Judas could not have been preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. There's no way. Because only a true believer could do something like that. But you remember what the the disciples' response was in John chapter 13? When Jesus says, what you do, do quickly, they look around and say, what is He talking about? Or when Jesus said, one of you will betray Me, why didn't they just say, well, it's Judas. He was the only guy that didn't cast out unclean spirits. He's the only one who didn't perform miracles in Your name. He was the one that was sleeping when, when, uh, when You were teaching all these times, Jesus. And so we know it's Judas. But, but they were clueless, weren't they? How could Judas be so close to Jesus and yet betray Him? I would suggest to you that that, uh, that He was doing all this teaching. He was doing all this listening. He was doing all this casting out of demons. From God's perspective, many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 22.14 From our, our perspective, we have to recognize that Doing things for Jesus does not mean spiritual life. Just because we do things for Jesus, just because we hang around Jesus, doesn't mean that we have spiritual life. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7? Verse 22 and 23, He says, Many will say to Me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not did I not cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. That, that is exactly Judas. I did all of these things in your name. How can you not accept me? The point is, Jesus doesn't accept us on the basis of our own righteousness. So what is the difference between Judas and the other eleven? Because I hope you're thinking right now, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be a betrayer of Jesus. Peter and the other disciples were disloyal to Jesus. In fact, we saw that last week, that Jesus said, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. And that's exactly what happens. Remember, we'll see here in the next couple of weeks in uh, Mark chapter 14 that Peter actually denies Jesus Christ. It's not exactly betrayal, but he does deny a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And so why are they saved, these other 11 disciples saved, and Judas was not? Well, I think we could go back to Mark chapter 4 and, and, uh, and discuss that passage all over again. And that is the passage of the soils, the parable of the soils. That when the seed is spread, the seed of the gospel is spread, on some, Satan takes it up right away and the, and the gospel never takes root. Others, it goes and it grows up immediately, but then because of the sun and other things, it, it just it, it gets wiped out. It just, it just can't make it. Others last a lot longer and it springs up with great joy and it seems like they're doing all these great things. This is where I would put Judas. But then because of the thorns that come up alongside of it, the deceitfulness of sin the wealth that is in the world, the, the love that they have for the things of this world, they choke out what life seemed to be there, which never was. The point is that never got down low enough to take the root. It never got down low enough to, to, to get the life-giving source of water that was needed in order to produce fruit, in order to endure the worst of storms, the greatest of temptations, the only way that can happen is if the Word is planted and, and the roots go down to the life-giving source of water. And what the point is here is that, that there will be lots of people that spring up like these plants. And it looks as if they have signs of life. But like Judas, doing things is not necessarily a sign of spiritual life because we can, we can fool people. I don't think Judas was fooled. I think Judas knew what he was doing. The Word never took root in him. And so how can we be sure that the Word takes root in our lives? I think what we need to do is, is to recognize that every time the Word of God is open, that we need to allow it to grip our hearts. That we need to, in our lives, pursue the highest goal in life, and that is to fulfill the purposes that God has set out for us not pursuing after the things of this life. Like, I'll pursue Jesus as long as He gives me something. And when He stops giving me something, then He's going away. See, then our highest goal is what? It's our own pursuits. It's our own desires. It's our own pleasures and, and wealth and, and riches and popularity. Whatever it is, Jesus is not our highest goal. It's not our final goal. And the only way that the Word will take root is if we have allowed God to do that work within us. So Christ prepares His followers for a departure. And then in verses 22-26, to He prepares His followers for His return. Verse 22, While they were eating, He took some bread, and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is My body. This is My body. This is, as you know, the uh, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper that we take part in once a month here at our church. And we'll talk about why we do that. But what I want to look at first is the, the two elements of the Lord's Supper. First, the bread, which represents Christ's body. He says, take it, this is my body. He's not saying that this is my literal body. He's not saying that this bread that you're eating is going to turn into my literal body in any way because He was there with them in the room. They weren't eating His literal body. And if you remember the the teaching that Jesus had 
taught in John chapter 6 where he said that I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will have everlasting life. He's not talking about his literal flesh. He's saying that you need to take a part of who I am and what I represent. I represent salvation for all who are sinners. See, there are religions who believe that the the bread actually turns into the body of Christ when we put it in our mouth. There are other religions who believe that the bread actually causes Christ to to come alongside of us in a way, give us a greater spiritual blessing. But it doesn't really impart grace in any way. The, the elements of the Lord's Supper don't impart grace, but rather simply a memorial is to remember what Jesus has done for us. The cup he he takes next in verses 23 and 24. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He calls it the blood of the covenant and other um, gospel writers actually record that he said that this was the blood of my new covenant, of the new covenant. And what we need to understand here is that the blood of the old covenant was poured from a sacrificial animal and what it did was it sealed the covenant between God and the people. And we saw this in, in, in Israel in Exodus chapter 24. And so this blood of Jesus actually seals the new covenant that we have with God. That God has made with the church and now we are able to be one with God despite our own sin. So from the time of Jesus' death until the time that He returns, animals and their blood are no longer necessary. Because as Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot finally and fully give us atonement for sin. It was only a temporary thing until the blood of the perfect Lamb was poured out for us. So why do we practice the Lord's Supper regularly? Here in this passage, it's not commanded, but in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, both of them say, like we have on the front of our table, do this in remembrance of me. It's a command. It's a command for Jesus to prepare His people. So the very first reason we practice the Lord's Supper is because it's commanded of us. The second reason is to remember the death of Jesus. That's why He says, do this, And then what's the next part say? In remembrance of me. It's a memorial. It's just like the Passover used to be for the people of Israel. It was for them to remember back to how God had spared them from the sword of Egypt and from the slavery, the oppression of Egypt. We also are are supposed to be remembering the death of Jesus. And by nature, we forget. Do you realize that? By nature, if we didn't have this Lord's Supper, we wouldn't think about the Lord's death as much. We would forget about His sacrifice. And so, He says, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of Me. And then thirdly, we are to partake in the Lord's Supper because it symbolizes the believer's participation in Christ's broken body and in His shed blood. It shows us it's really a um, a memorial, a, a symbol of our sanctification that we are continually in need of Christ's change in our lives. Baptism is a one-time thing. It symbolizes saving faith. But 
the Lord's Supper is a continual thing. We do it over and over again because we continually need that cleansing of the blood, don't we? The blood did cleanse once for all, but it's a recognition that we are still spotted by our own sin. We need to recognize and point back to that cross that saved us. And then fourthly, it helps us to observe the Lord's death until He comes. That's what it says in verse 25. Notice, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying here? saying, this is the last time I will drink of the fruit of the vine. This is the last time I will drink of anything until the kingdom comes. He's pointing forward to a future event. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, As often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That's exactly what He wants. He wants us to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We keep on doing it until He returns. It's a perpetual and universal obligation of all believers. And the Lord's Supper really should be a generally joyful memorial for us. It's true that we do commemorate His death. And that is sad that He had to die. But it's the death that brought us life. We don't have to mope around like there is no hope in life. We take joy in that death that brought us life. We say, thank you, God, that I am a part of the blood. He drank the cup of suffering so that we could drink the cup of joy. And in that way, the Lord's Supper should be an enjoyable, a joy-filled time. The meal is concluded in verse 26. They sing a hymn and go out into the Mount of Olives. This was the custom during the Passover that they would sing Psalms 113 through 118, the Hallel songs, the praise songs. And uh, so they probably sang one of these. What we need to see from this passage is that Jesus has gone on to be with His Father in glory, but He is coming back. He will be back. Although He's not physically here, He is here. Matthew 28, 20 says, Lo, I am with you how long? Always, even to the end of the age. He may not be here with us physically, but He is with us spiritually. What will you do with Jesus while He is physically away? When He returns, will He find you sleeping? Will He find that you have given up on Him or betrayed Him? The act of betrayal, according to Peter in Acts chapter 3, was not only done by Judas. Judas actually attributes the betrayal of Christ to the people of Israel. This is what he writes, or this is what he says in Acts 3.13, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you, people of Israel, delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. The act of betraying Jesus was not only done by Judas, it was done by all the people of Israel. We need to ask ourselves the same question that the disciples asked of themselves in verse 19. Surely not I, Lord. Could it be me who betrays you? While Christ delays His return, it it often seems as if Christ is losing. Is it as if the battle for uh, against sin and Satan 
seems to be endless and it seems that, that we can never gain a foothold on Him. In fact, He gains a foothold on us. But what Christ is saying is that we need to endure till the end. Allow the Spirit to, 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 to take that Word and implant it deep in your heart. Let that Word take deep root in you. Don't allow it like Judas to just wash over you and you never think about it again. Allow it to take deep root. Don't be like Judas who was cold and indifferent to spiritual things. All that he wanted was his own self-interest, his own purposes. Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. The way to avoid betrayal is by continually clinging to the cross of Christ that saved you. Allow God to continue to change you. And that only happens when you are responding to the Word that has been given to you, that has been implanted in you from the very beginning. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, what a sobering passage to consider that even some who have been around the teaching of Scripture and who have done things apparently in Your name and who have even fooled many people will ultimately betray You and will even be deceived by their own betrayal. That many will say to You, did we not do all these things in Your name and yet the basis for our righteousness before You is not our righteousness. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the only thing that we can say when we come before You is that we had no righteousness on our own. The only thing that we can attribute to ourselves is that is our own faith. That You, God, a loving and gracious God, had, will take, instead of perfect righteousness, which we cannot offer, You will take faith in Jesus Christ who was perfect. We pray that You would help us to recognize that that is not a one-time decision. Although there is an element in which salvation is a once-for-all thing, that it, once we are saved, we will never be unsaved. We have to recognize that the process of salvation, the process of sanctification is always going on. And we will never end this battle with sin until we die or until Jesus comes to take us to be with Him. And so we pray that You give us the strength to endure, to not be found sleeping, to be ready, to be on the alert, to be accomplishing the tasks that You have set out for us to do. Help us not to be complacent in our relationship with You, in our relationship to the Word, and in our response to it. But help us always to recognize the sincere uh, necessity that there is to readily and, and always be responding to Your Word. We can't do that on our own. We need Your help. So we pray that You'd help us to be dependent on You, that we would watch and pray so that we would not fall into temptation. May the grace that You poured out on us in salvation continue to be poured out upon us until that final salvation when You glorify us and make us forever 
holy. We long for that day and we pray that our Savior would come quickly. In His name that we pray, amen.